Welcome to another episode of Edge Grip Podcast, and is this, this episode number what what number? Twelve. If I, we were right the first time, I thought it was five hundred and twenty-three. Right? No. You, you know, twenty-four. You know that every time I, I I try and Google a motorcycle podcast, all the other podcasts have like a thousand episodes, and then I look at ours and it's like twelve. And I was like, we really we really should should do more episodes, but then we're always busy. We're, we emphasize quality. There Qual- you go. Quality? There you go. Quality over quantity. You have too many. No one listens. <laughs> that that that's also true. Uh, so our next guest, our guest today is. Uh, let me give you a clue who it is. What is what is the common denominator between JD Beach, Valentin Debris, Cam Peterson, Daytona Anderson, Andy Debrino, Hayden Gillum, Jake Lewis, Kyle Wyman? Josh Herring, Jason Uribe, Lana Myers, Martin Cardenas, and more and more and more and more. What's what's the common denominator between all those writers? Do you know the bill? Why, by gee, it must be Ken Hill. No, oh, it's <laughs> Ken Hill. We have Ken Hill on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be here. And Ken Hill is considered. Coming. Ken Hill is considered, I think, the to be the best motorcycle coach around. I think the best motorcycle coach in the world. Just just looking at his resume and looking at the results he produces. If if you want to get faster, um, if you're fast and you only already want to get faster, that's that's really the coach that the pros use, right? I, I think there's, so there's a lot to that, whether I, I don't think I'll ever, I'm the more I know, the less I know. And I don't, I don't think I'll ever be the best, but I'd like to be the best. And that's kind of what I strive to to do every single day is to figure out how to get better. And yeah, I mean, regardless of whether I'm working with somebody at the literally the last 0.01% or I'm working with somebody at the, the first 1%, um, you know, I want to be able to have techniques and habits to, to be able to communicate to any, any of those people. And I think that's really the hallmark of somebody figuring this out is it doesn't matter who's sitting in front of them. It doesn't matter who they're coaching is you can be able to relate to them for what's holding them back that day and what their next steps are. And that's, I mean, I, I really, I remember how bad I struggled with that. And so that's something that I work on um, and we can get, you know, how I went through that. Uh, but that's really what I've tried to figure out. So it doesn't matter like this weekend in New Jersey, I absolutely had a couple chats with JD Beach. I mean, I work with CJ LaRoche, also a top super sport rider, or whether it's somebody that, I mean, I answered email today for somebody that had never done a track, has never been into the track before. So the hallmark is being able to have techniques and habits or fundamentals for any of those people. And and uh, we, we see a lot of coaches um, in different areas in, in the business world. There's a lot of coaches that you know that they, they have a great reputation and everything, but when you ask them, how many? Okay, how many? How many businesses? If you're a business coach, how many businesses did you build? Uh, they they ne- they never actually <laughs> built the business. They're just great at giving advice. But that's that's not the case with you. You were a pretty successful racer. I mean, you raced. Uh, you started racing in '94, and you did Wira, AFM, AMA, and you raced until 2008 at pretty much the highest level, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, my story is a little bit different and my story and, you know, where I'm at today is a byproduct of getting basically punched in the face and also starting late. 
And yeah, I started late, didn't own a motorcycle till I was basically 30 years old. Didn't know um, I wanted to race it. And, and I was coming off of a couple, you know, almost 20 years in the car business. So I spent about 20 years in the car business. I worked literally started off as a parts delivery driver, then parts department, parts counter, parts manager, service manager, then parts. I mean, I went through the whole line and ended up running dealerships kind of at the end. And so yeah, I've, I've sort of been through that business thing and I always wanted to race cars, could never afford to race cars. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to do something cheap. I'll race motorcycles here. What a dumbass. And so I bought a bike at the end of 93, bought a brand new Honda F2. I wanted a CBR 900 so bad, but I ended up being, you know, smart and buying this, this 600. Never, I'd never been to the track. I had never seen a motorcycle race. And I signed up for AFM New Racer School on Saturday, prepped my bike, New Racer School Saturday, raced on Sunday, completely insane. And, um, you know, muddled my way, muddled my way uh, through that. So, yeah, I mean, I, that was kind of a, um, a that was kind of a um, interesting start. And I made it through the first year. And just like everybody else that gets started with this, you know, the, the second year, it's like, I want to step my game up. And so to step my game up, my technique to go faster was to go faster. And I basically crashed my brains out a few times, ended up sitting out half the year and like, what the hell am I doing? And back when starting, you know, starting a family, you know, I had a professional job and figuring out how I could be sustainable and, and go through the long term with this. And then to, to, to kind of skip the middle a little bit, but to get to the end of what you're talking about is, yeah, I mean, this has been my career for the last 20 years. This is how I pay my mortgage. I put all my kids through undergrad and I've done that by trying to be the best. And, and, you know, you guys see, I don't advertise in my website shit. I don't, I mean, I just, I just work on being the best. And if you do that, the right people will, will find you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very blessed to be in the position that I am, but it also is, you know, working 80 hours a week to not work 40. <laughs> And, and, and oh, I've met you, I think, a few times just mm -hmm. at the track. And yep. um, I knew of you and I knew you were an amazing coach and, and your reputation preceded you. I never had an idea you were that prolific and you had built such a successful career behind it. How did you, what were your keys to success in your mind? Hard work seems to be number one, like 80 hours a week. Uh, a lot of people will tell you, yep, you got to put in the sweat. But there must have been some guiding principles. Yeah. Yeah, there sure was. I mean, so this will be a little bit long-winded, but it's it's there's merit to this. So so hang in there with me. Yeah. So when I started, I didn't have technique. I had nothing, right? I had no natural talent. My dad wasn't a dirt tracker, right? My dad was a lawyer who said never would get on a motorcycle. And as I went through this journey, the first year, you know, was okay, then started crashing. Ended up going to a school, ended up going to the Freddie Spencer schools, the first school that I went to, realized how much more was out there. Well, because I was you know, working professionally, was starting a family, I had to really be deliberate with my training. So it's like, I only had a few hours a week to train because I had other stuff in my life going on. So organically, I ended up like, okay, Saturday mornings, I could literally go ride my dirt bike for an hour. And Sunday, I could, I could go, you know, go do strength training or do something. So I had very little time to actually dedicate to the sport but I had to make it really deliberate. So I had to start thinking about what, you know, how do I get better? And I think part of my background as well is um, in my teens, I was a cyclist. 
Um, so I was a pretty competitive cyclist, actually got on national podiums as a cyclist. And so I started to treat it as like training, even though back then I sort of didn't know what I, I didn't know. And as I kind of went through that and realized, okay, there's a school, I got to you know figure this out. And the school thing was really interesting because when I went to Freddy's the first time, I went as a student and I was, I was getting good enough to where I was a Michelin sponsored um, uh, student that went there or, or writer that went there. And I left with far more questions than I got answered. Yeah, there was some technique stuff that I got, but I realized how much more was out there. And that's what really started my journey to decode what's going on in the sport. And I, it's like, okay, I, I think I think what ended up happening, there was, there was two sort of big things that happened. One was I treated it as a sport early on. I didn't treat it as a hobby. I didn't treat it as um, a lifestyle. I wanted to get better and I wanted to understand what the best in the world were doing. And because I had access to, to Freddy's um, and, and, and be able to start that journey, that's that helped massively. So that was one big thing that that started it. And then later on, as I, uh, later on, as I, uh, I think the next big breakthrough was around 2014 or 15, maybe a little bit earlier than that, maybe 2012. Um, we started to develop a little bit of a peer group. And these were people that all they wanted to do is ride motorcycles. And these were people that were either coming to the school or I was coaching privately that did things at a very high level in their world. And we're talking Yale economics professor, special forces, Top Gun pilots, um, uh, Michelin starred chefs. And I started looking at, okay, well, these, these guys are some of the best in the world at what they do. Why do, why do they want to ride motorcycles? So why do, why, why are they so enthralled with motorcycles? And then, you know, what attracts them to motorcycles and what is the process of getting good because they're very good at what they did. So we started collaborating. And then, so I basically got involved with being able to ask, you know, have access to what all these people did and realized what is the process of excellence? What's the process of mastery? How do you get good? And that was, I think the other big breakthrough is starting to actually not only decode the sport of motors of motorsports, right? Decode technique, but to decode the process of how to get good and the process of communication. And those, those, I think those two things um, have sort of run parallel. And again, the more I know, the less I know. So we skipped a bunch in there, but that's, those were sort of the two big moments of, of me trying to figure out this deal is one to treat it like a sport and two, understand the process of getting good. So in that process, I mean, I, I love what you said about, you know, people who are good at a lot of things outside motorcycling. I have a few friends actually who are quite successful business people and um, they kind of apply the same. I'm going to say discipline without stealing your thunder. But what did you find that these people did that you later applied yourself and help your student apply that gets them to, let's say, a better level or that yeah. level of, of performance? Yeah. So. For either of you guys, it doesn't, and this, this, this is actually one of the defining moments of what I do and who I am and how I teach is you can have, and it's the same with me, right? I can have JD Beach get on my motorcycle and he goes faster on the same bike. Okay. Why is that? 
you can have an SF guy who somebody else picks up their, their firearm and shoots it better, or he shoots it better than them. Or somebody gets on your motorcycle, they're, they're faster than you. Why? Why is that? They're better. They're just better at the fundamentals than you are. That's it. There's no, there's no secrets. And when I started diving into their fundamentals, I realized our sport does not have fundamentals. And, and that was the big one, right? So you can Google volleyball fundamentals. You can Google, you know, softball. I mean, there's punt, pass, and kick competitions, right? And, and yet in our sport, there's no clear-cut fundamentals. So all those years of working at the schools, you know, I started working at the schools basically in, I don't know, it was kind of part-time in 2000 and, I don't know, three or four, uh, part-time at the schools, and then ended up being a full-time instructor at Freddy's, and then we started the Yamaha school. All those reps with all those thousands and thousands of students, we were writing notes. I was writing notes of, of what, what, what were we doing? How, how are we making improvements? What were the things that we always came back and talked about? What were the things that, that were the last things to talk about or the first things to talk about? I took notes on all that. I spent years, years writing notes. And when I branched off and started doing my own thing and started doing more one-on-ones, then it, it really started with, I had a client that literally could not hit an apex the entire day. And normally I'd kind of had my, my deal. Like I would do X amount of things per day to show, you know, to give them some idea of what's going on fundamental, fundamentally wise, but I had a student could, could not hit a single apex. Well, I realized if he can't hit an apex, I can't go to the next step. So that real, that, that particular student really was the, the next step of, look, I have to hone in on the fundamentals. I have to understand what are the fundamentals what are the references for each fundamental? What are the report cards for each, each fundamental? How do I know that I did it right? You know, et, et cetera, et cetera. And again, that, that again, went to my journey of trying to figure this out. And so that's why I've, I've established what I believe are the fundamentals for the sport. It's what we teach. And not only is the fundamentals important, but it's the order in which you teach them important. So that, those are the fundamentals that I've created, which is bike placements, number one, right? Because that's all we're trying to do is get the bike in the right place at the right time. That, it doesn't matter, right? That's our central point of reference. Second one is our vision and focus. So vision and focus is, is you know, our, obviously our vision tells us what's going on um, and tells us how we're going to react to things. So vision and focus. The third one is our motor controls, right? So if we... we we have to have vision and focus before we have motor controls because we're trying to tie our vision and focus to our motor controls. Fourth one is brake adjustability, right? So we've got to be able to adjust our brakes. That's that's a, a, a big one. Uh, of course, we've got turn and rate and turn and point. And then the last one is body position and body timing. So those are the six fundamentals and that's the order of the fundamentals. So again, if, a lot of times we see people trying to teach body position first or we see um, you know, people trying to teach things out of order, but, you know, they could have their best body position in the world, but miss every freaking apex, right? Or they could be the most abrupt on breaks. So I, I, what I learned from all of that was fundamentals are looped. Fundamentals just, as one fundamental improves, like one fundamental improves, another one might lag behind, and then you build that one up. And it's just this constant loop. So I, the biggest takeaway from all of the, all those years, all those thousands, tens of thousands of, of reps and laps, hours, 
is we need established fundamentals and we need to have an order for those fundamentals. And you realize that fundamentals are looped and all you're doing is getting better at the fundamentals. So it actually, it, and when you understand that, it actually makes your job a hell of a lot easier than something ambiguous. So yeah, that's uh, kind of, again, kind of a long-winded story for all that. But that was my biggest takeaway from, from those people was, um, is at the best, the best of whatever, whether it's business or whether it's a Top Gun pilot or whether it's a bread maker, right? It, they, they all have specific fundamentals they all have discipline, they all have routines, and they're just trying to make those better. So long-winded, but there you go. I, I think you just connected That's a lot of dots. A, a great dance. Yeah, you, you just connected a lot of dots for us. Uh, per, per, personally, for me, the first time I went to Chuckwalla, I got some some training from Dale, and uh, he uh, he had one of his instructors follow me around and, and video me, and I... For the life of me, I couldn't I couldn't hit any apex, and I was dragging knee in every turn. Um, could not hit that apex, uh, and I came back and I said, I think I'm going as fast as I'm ever going to go on this racetrack. I'm going really fast. I'm I'm dragging knee, but at at the end of the day, that those fundamentals of vision, right? If if you have that tunnel vision that you know you're going you're going so fast, you're dragging knee, but you're not looking forward and you're not already you know using your vision to figure out what's going on after the turn it, you're not going to get any faster your lines are not going to get any better you're not going to hit any apexes and you're going to screw up your exits uh and it's it's a feedback loop uh and and what he did and what's what's so important that you do with with the one-on-one -on -one, i think is just driving you know in front of someone just pointing here's the apex Here's that apex. Yep. Hit this. Hit that. Right. And and the listeners don't don't see the camera, but I'm pointing. So that is so important. Even though there's a cone there, uh, when you're riding behind someone and you're concentrating on what they're telling you to do, it's it's a hundred times more effective than look at it looking at a cone a cone and pointing to it or trying to point to it. Yeah, I mean that's again. This is why in in late 2019 and, and 2020, uh, when the pandemic hit, I spent. Um, I actually had my Top Gun pilot uh, friend. Uh, he took me aside, and because uh, he would come out to a bunch of our events when I was doing the Rick program, and he took me aside and he goes, "You know, Ken, I'm doing what you say to do because I know you and I trust you, and I obviously see that this works." He goes, "But dude, you got to write this shit down." He, he goes, you got to write this down. And so during that time, you know, I spent that almost year writing things like all the stuff that was compiled in my head. I wrote, the, I wrote things down. And what he, one of the things that he did for me was he put me in contact at that time the, with the person that was the, the, was the current commandant of the Top Gun School. And I actually got to talk with him and spend time with him. And I got to see the format of how they wrote their books and how they wrote their curriculums. And that's what I mimicked in, in some of the guides that I've, or the things that I jotted things down, right? So to your point is, you've got to be able to define define something, uh, but more more than defining it, right? So you, you, you define it, but you also have to talk about, um, uh, once you define it, how, how does it actually apply, right? What are the report cards for when you apply it? Um, what, are, what are the drills? And then more importantly, how do you know you've got it right? 
And that to me is the big one where it's so easy to be like, oh, dude, you just need to go through two faster. What? That's that's the what to do is very simple. The how to do it, not only the how to do it, but how to, how to communicate how to do it individually. That's where the that's the secret, right? That's where the money is, and that's what I've doubled down on is making sure that my I'm not conforming to the student or or I don't want the student to conform to me. I want to conform to the student, right? So I want to be able to figure out. What is their trigger and how they learn? What is holding them back? And to be able to pull from the fundamentals on what their next steps are. Yeah, that, that's really that's absolutely right. So, you know, it's like in business and in, in technology, every process you want to seek excellence with, you have to break it down and perfect the steps and, and organize them in a way that, that helps people understand what they're doing and how to get there. I mean, one of the things I noticed in your six steps, you didn't talk about being brave, right? Most of the advice you get at the track is, you know, just be brave. You got to go faster. Yeah, and go faster. Every time, yeah. It's bullshit. And every time I have gotten coaching, it was about the techniques. And when I'm at the track only focusing on the techniques and what I need to do before a turn, at the turn, exiting the turn, and not thinking about the speed, I actually end up going faster. Yeah. So it, it's it's really simple. If, if you were standing in an airplane and you're going to parachute out, or you're going to jump out of an airplane, if you didn't have a parachute, how Fucking how how scared would you be? Of course you'd be scared because you didn't have a way to mitigate jumping out of an airplane. Jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, you're still going to be apprehensive, but at least you have something to mitigate that. It's it's that's what fear is, right? Fear is simply fear hasn't happened yet, but confidence comes from having the techniques and habits to mitigate your fears. So if you know the whole go faster thing. It's, it's funny because everybody that has like acceleration problems, like, oh, dude, the guy doesn't accelerate well. It has nothing to do with the throttle. It has to do with your braking because you don't want to accelerate. So how do you work on acceleration? Work on braking because now you have a way to mitigate acceleration. So, if it's, it, you know, people are like, oh, you know, short shift, do this. No, work on your braking because person's not doesn't want to accelerate because they're scared of what might happen. So if you work on the mitigation, suddenly they want to accelerate it, it all ties in it all ties in so you you can screw a corner from two corners before it so that that's why it's all you know it, it, it's it's all a feedback loop correct correct uh let, let's go to uh 2003 to 2008 you taught at the freddie spencer school uh, now I talked to Dale and Dale said, Hey, ask him, uh, who's responsible for, uh, you know, for, for that thing happening and who, and who made the, the most amount of impact on, on his writing. You know, that was, that was, um, that was an insane opportunity and I somehow lucked into it. And a lot of it of course was due to Dale and, um, you know, Dale putting in good words for me and, and, you know, at the time that I got got into that program because I was I went there as a student twice and then they invited me back as a guest instructor for a few times and then they're like hey you know do you want to fill in and then you know, ultimately was a, a full-time instructor and at that point they only had four people that were ever been there I mean they had you know they had Dale was the first actually and then they had Nick Inosh, Jeff Haney uh, and Andre Castanos and Andre was there for a little bit but on and off 
And then I got in the mix and you think about what, I mean, that was rarefied air, quite honestly. And I realized the opportunity and I, I went there for the first five years on my dime. I, you know, it's like nowadays it's like, Oh dude, you're going to be a coach. Cool. You get paid this money. It's awesome. No bullshit. I paid my own airfare, my own hotel and, you know, did all that because I realized what an opportunity this was. And that group of guys, Again, I was so lucky to be in there. And yeah, I mean, honestly, thanks to thanks to all those guys for, for having me in there. And I again didn't realize what I didn't what I didn't know. And I can I mean, at that point, I mean, I was going okay as a club racer, right? I was going all right. And I go there and you know, we ride stock bikes. And of course, I got kind of the hand-me-down shit. You know, they all had their own bikes and I got the hand-me-down shit. But at lunchtime, we'd have these like instructor Grand Prix. And so right when everybody going to lunch, we do like five laps all in and dude, I got dropped so fast. I mean, I was like, how are these guys like, I'm like, I go, okay. I don't understand how slow, I mean, I'm so slow. And first of all, you got to realize, you know, how good all these guys were. I mean, you know, Nick, obviously national champion Dale on, you know, AMA podiums, Haney, you know, dirt track. And I mean, so I realized how much I had, I had to learn and also having access to Freddie. And so basically I, I used that time to ask every question I could. I practiced at lunchtime. I practiced at, if I got four laps at the end of the day, I got four laps of, of complete deliberate practice at the end of the day. And yeah, it's, I spent seven years doing that and I, I never missed a video session. Um, and I just was all, and I still have, I have, I don't have them here, but I got books, all my notebooks of all the things that I wrote down. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a really, that was a really special time. And um, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I learned. Now I know what I learned at the time. Um, yeah, I was just very, very blessed to, to, to be in that, to be in that position with those people. And uh, yeah, very, very lucky. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think ultimately I ended up, you know, leaving there with more questions than answers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had some really good performances, obviously, you know, personally at that time in, 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 in my racing, um, definitely stepped my program up and, uh, kind of led the journey that I'm on today. Do you have any notable students from there? Anybody you can remember? I mean, there's, I mean, we had, I mean, there's just so many, I mean, the Freddie schools, it was really interesting. I mean, Freddie, we were sold out. I mean, we were sold out of schools for years, years we were sold out and, um, I mean, I don't really, I mean, there's so many of them. It's funny. I still get people come up to me. It's like, oh my God, you're my Freddie instructor and you know, whatever, 2005 or something like that. And I don't, I don't remember all of them, but, uh, I mean, there, there were so many, we, and we used to have racer schools. It was pretty cool to have some racer schools. We had some celebrity schools. We had that kind of stuff. And so it was, it was just a, a super great time. And I mean, I, I have, I have so many great memories and of, of being there. And it's funny because, you know, Freddie ran the BTR program at Mode America. So I saw Freddie a few times at Mode America this year and we sat and just bullshitted for an hour while everybody's, you know, wanting different things from him and wanting different things from me. But uh, yeah, again, uh, super special time. But yeah, I, again, big takeaways from there was obviously that there was a way to improve in the sport. And I, I saw people that should not literally be riding a motorcycle, but you were able to give them the tools they needed to survive on a motorcycle. And that was always very, very cool. Um, being able to be around again, Dale and Nick and Jeff um, and Freddie watching Freddie ride. Freddie didn't ride that much, but, you know, getting to ride with Freddie on track. We rode with Nikki Hayden on track a bunch. 
Um, I can I can remember. I mean, the the phrase that I that I would like to think that I coined, you know, twenty seven years ago about the slowest point of the corner. Um, that that actually came from me sitting there watching Nikki at the inside road course at Vegas, Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and you know I he'd stop and want feedback, and uh, yeah, I mean all so yeah, a lot of great takeaways from that from in that time. And so you've coached a lot of amazing current racers that are producing excellent results and past racers. Um, how did you adapt your approach to each one? I guess the first part of the question. Second part is. Kind of want to hear some of the funniest story you have with your adventures with them. And, and, I, and I want to hear, what did you do to J.D. Beach this year? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so so the mm. thing is, there's no different process, right? That's the thing. Is fundamentals are fundamentals. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter if you're, the, again, the first 20%. doesn't matter if you're the last 0.01%. It's the fundamentals are the same. And what you're doing though is the most important part is you're you're evaluating them for what's holding them back and then giving them the appropriate tools to to fix it and giving them the appropriate report cards of say how you know how again how do you know you did it right and so it doesn't it there's nothing special that's that everybody wants like the silver bullet there isn't any what it is is recognizing what is holding them back that's the secret and that's why it's like, you don't go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, my arm hurts. And he goes, okay, cool, let's put you in a cast. You go through appropriate testing to see what's wrong with your arm so they can they can fix it. And it's no different. We spend quite a bit of time evaluating. Our evaluation process is a little bit goofy. Happy to tell you about that, but it works. And I mean, let's let's talk about JD. You know, I, I got a, um, I've known Mike Canfield for Christ, almost 30 years. And Mike was actually my first sponsor back when I raced at AFM. And, you know, Mike is now gone, one of, you know, on Gagne's crew. And Mike was also one of JD's crew chiefs um, on some of his championships. And Mike texted me. He said, hey, I'm going to be working with JD Beach. This is at the end of 14. He says, I'm going to be working with JD Beach. Can you look at this guy? And I'm like, well, I'm kind of busy. I really don't. I mean, I don't really know who this guy is. And um, so... Mike's like, hey, how about what? Well, what what would you do to work with him? I said, why don't you get a video first? So I get a video of him at Thunder Hill at a test. I'm like, yeah, this guy's obviously got some skills. And when I went to work with JD, I mean, JD was you know obviously Red Bulls dirt tracker. Um, done some, he did some superbike stuff with Attack back in the day, but honestly, JD was kind of like a fifth place guy. And what we found out with JD, um, I mean, we started working with him in 15. We started working, and then we upped his game a little bit in 16 and then really started upping his game in 17 and 18. And the thing with JD, we had a lot of different things that went on with JD. One was um, his ability to focus and how to use his eyes. And he basically had a lot of internal chatter in his head. And when it comes to vision, vision's kind of like one of my uh, passions. Because vision, vision is the, I mean, if everybody wants the silver bullets to the sport, it's your vision in the front break. But with JD, what would happen is because he didn't have set uh, reference points and he didn't, if you don't have a reference point, you actually don't have anything to tie your technique to. If you don't have anything to tie your technique to, you don't have anything to focus on, right? So by developing those things, JD, at times he would lead a race or he would fade pretty badly, riders that fade. 
had a lot of internal chatter going on. And as we developed vision skills with him, then his focus got better. And then his, his techniques got better. So the big thing with JD initially was, was focus uh, via vision. Um, and then a lot of it also was how he used his lower legs and used his core, how he took weight off of his hands. And then the next, the, I'd say the thing with him as well as the front brake. And we spent a lot of time with front brake on him. And because he was so used to using the rear brake, um, the rear brake was dominant and how he was using the front brake was one mode. It was one brake application for every corner. It didn't matter what the corner was like. So we had to get JD to understand that different corners require different brake applications. And, you know, this is where, the, again, the, the phrase we look at is we call brake timing. So where do you want maximum brake pressure? Where do you want to let off the brake? Where should your turn in be? And I mean, it was even up until 2019, when JD went to the attack team that year, JD's trigger when we do his track walks was he wanted to draw his braking graph for every corner before he, that was his thing. He would go up for his, his track walks and he's like, I want to know what my brake graph looks like before I get to that corner. So with JD, um, yeah, I mean, I would say the big the big thing with him was getting his vision turned around, getting his core engaged um, so, so the bike turns appropriately um, and um, then getting his, his front brake his front brake going on. And if you combine that with somebody like that, that has all that riding experience that he has from dirt track um, and obviously road racing. Yeah. He's, he's, he's freaking lethal. Um, and a guy like that, even though he's been dirt track a couple of years, you know, he saw, obviously he jumped on the super bike at New Jersey and jumped on the, the bike at Coda and dude, fundamentals are fundamentals. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that. And that's, See, that's the thing, right? It's like, oh, oh, you know, he's jumping from a dirt track bike to this. No, fundamentals are fundamentals. And what we talked about simply was his eyes and his core during the weekend. I mean, I wasn't, he knows enough of this now. He has enough reps. I don't have to beat this into him, but it was just some reminders of some, some things, but this is, that's the beauty of fundamentals. You can take them anywhere. So there you go. Do, do you think developing them on, on dirt bikes uh, is still significantly helpful like it was in the 80s uh or do you think electronics kind of eliminated the need for riders to go through dirt tracking before they start on asphalt so i caught a lot of shit a few years ago about um you know i kind of bagged i didn't say i don't want to say i bagged on it but I downplayed the importance of like, you remember that little mini, the, the mini craze that was happening about four or five years ago, right? Dude, if you're not on a freaking mini, you're going to suck. Right. And I kind of downplayed that. And, and so I got accused of, well, you don't believe minis are the wave of the future and you don't believe minis are the way to go. And, you know, Jorge Lorenzo and all this shit. I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm saying minis are a small percentage of the overall picture in being good. They're not the only thing that allows you to be good. And same thing with same thing with what you're talking about with dirt. I think dirt is a, is a very, very important piece of the puzzle, especially for newer riders because the newer racers are riders. Because one thing that's not talked about enough, and this is another thing that we've looked at, and I, I've got podcasts on this, is so why is let's look at a JD Beach or a Hayden Gillum, right? What 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 they're good at is they have an established bank of feel references. 
And so they understand when the bike wants to move around. They understand when the rear wants to slide because they have so many reps in the dirt doing it. So a lot of guys, they don't have that experience. They don't have feel references. So they're scared if the front's going to push or afraid if the rear is going to come around because they don't have that. So yes, I think little mini bikes, um, you know, mini bikes, mini bike riding, like I swear that the dirt track at Chuckwalla is by far the best environment. We, I've got, I don't know, freaking 10,000 laps out there. So, but I mean, that's the environment where you, you learn field references. I mean, I can tell you that we worked like, for instance, um, even Jake Lewis, Nick McFadden, you know, riders like that. We worked, we worked like Nick had a problem where he struggled with front end feel and well, front end confidence. So we would do drills in the dirt on that dirt track. We would do drills to get him to, to work on that, add brake pressure, turn it in the dirt, um, for instance, or we, you know, I want you to actually lock the front tire up on, you know, straight up and down and then be able to release the brake, or you're going to go back. You're going to, you're going to add brake pressure, turn in, release it and go back to it. So you, you start to give them these tools for, for fuel references. So to answer your question, yeah, that I think it's, I think it is a pretty important piece. And the bottom line is you can still high side, high side your freaking brains out with an electronics. <laughs> so um, it's important. I mean, yeah, electronics are great, but uh, you can't skip over field references. So speaking of that, right, the fundamentals don't change, but the big variable every time is a different track. So what's your advice for people who get on a new track or maybe they never had references on, on the track they go to on how to learn a track quickly? Yeah. Or better. Well, I think we yeah, got so we got an advice from, from uh, Ben Spees when we interviewed them, and it included having multiple motorcycles because you really need to figure out where the limit is uh, from the other side. So first, you gotta you know almost crash or crash, uh, and then you, you understand okay, this is this is as far as I can go here. So five or six motorcycles, and you should be good learning a new track, right? What, what's your advice? Yeah, so my advice is not advice, but it's a technique. And I learned this mainly from Freddie and I learned it from Nikki. And even and even Scott Russell, right? I've got years of riding with Scott Russell. Scott Russell was like a Ben Spees. Scott would be like, I would go into a corner until I ran off and then I'd back off. Well, the problem is for Scott Russell or Ben Spees, that works, right? They're getting paid a lot of money as a professional racer to do that. For the people that actually will pay you money and want to stay in the sport, the the, the real 99.9% .9 of people that are on track, that's not actually a sustainable way of doing it. So what I learned from Freddie, and I I, um, I can remember riding with Freddie, many laps with Freddie, um, and how he did it. So we would ride with Freddie. And, you know, Freddie may not have ridden for six months and he, he'd be like, you know what, I'll what bike do you got? And it's like, well, how about that one? Freddie typically had his own bike, but sometimes whatever didn't start and who ridden it or whatever the deal is, he'd jump on anything. It didn't matter. And, you know, you had me and Nick and Dale and we, we didn't get to ride with Freddie that much. So we made a point of always, you know, going out riding them. So you'd ride with Freddie. And, you know, the first lap you'd accelerate out and you're kind of putting around. And like, so you'd, you'd accelerate off a corner pretty hard, but then you'd go to the brakes pretty early. And you're like, whatever, I got Freddie covered, right? You're like, whatever. And then like three corners later, like he's accelerating off corners pretty hard. And then like two more corners, he's leaving freaking darkies off corners. But then, you know, you come to the entry and he's like slow. And you're like, you're like, so you'd catch back up essentially. And then you'd be like, 
So you, you complete the first lap and you're like, dude, I got Freddie covered, whatever. And then the second lap, pretty soon, what would happen is he's still getting these great drives, but he incrementally brought his, his entries up. And so what Freddie did was he nailed his entries. And I'm, I'm not, I mean, you could see lap after lap, he was leaving rubber off of every freaking corner, gigantic darkies. And then he incrementally brought his entry up. And I'm, I'm telling you, in three or four laps, he's gone. He's fucking gone. And, you know, these are, we're all guys that could ride. And what Freddie did, so this is one of the ones where I'm like, literally sit, sit down in his office, like, Freddie, what, 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 what just happened, right? How do you explain to me what your process is with this? And this is another one of the things that I wrote down, which is Freddie always started with exits. Because for a bunch of reasons. One, exits always last longest. Acceleration always lasts longest. You know, the, you're trying to travel the most feet per second, right? That's what you're trying to do at the highest speed. And so Freddie's like, well, I'm trying to get the bike in. And what Freddie called, if you remember back in those days, Freddie would call it a direction change. But what, what I ended up decoding with Freddie is the direction change was the slowest point of the corner. And so it took me a few years to figure that out with him. When he'd say direction change, what he meant was where the bike was slowed and pointed. And a lot of people say direction change thinking it's a left or right thing. And, and so with Freddie, uh, he said, well, you know, I'm going to work on my exits first because they're easiest, they're safe. And he goes, I just keep incrementally bringing my entries up. So to answer your question is most tracks, I don't actually, there's no track that I know of that has more deceleration than an acceleration period. So if you just work on your exits and have good exits, you're ultimately going to have a pretty good lap time, but you have to establish exits first. Exits have to be established first. You establish your exit first, and then you incrementally bring your entry speed up. And then once your entry speed ruins your exit, then you know that that's too much. That's the safer and more repeatable way of doing it instead of saying, well, hope I make it. Right. I mean, a lot of us don't have that luxury of saying, I'm just going to, you know, send it and hope I make it through the corner. But the methodical way of doing it is I'm going to I'm going to establish my exits. So in other words, I'm going to establish my slow point. I'm going to establish my exit with appropriate report cards. Can I take away lean angle? When can I get to full throttle? Where's my tack out point? Where's my hitting the rev limiter? Um, where's my shift point? Right. So you have established report cards for that and you're trying to make those better. And then at the same time, you're incrementally bringing your entry up of where you're applying the brakes, but you're never losing your exit. And that's how we start it. So, and then we break, we can break it up into like, well, like, um, I mean, we can look at, let's, I mean, we can, we can look at Chuck Walla real quick. Cause you guys, you guys kind of know Chuck Walla, right? It's like, you're going to work on the big exits first, and you're going to work on the places where you're basically carrying the most speed. And some corners aren't really that big a deal. Like if you're going clockwise, for instance, like six, seven is not that high on the priority list, but 10 is, um, 12 is, exit of the bowl is, um, you know, I mean, th those are the things where you got big exits. I'm not going to put a lot of brain space in an area when I, when I master the other ones, then I'm going to come after six, seven, but I, if, but it's, it's the math isn't good if you're you're trying to attack the slow the, the places that that matter the least first so we look at the places that have the most acceleration um you know we pick three or four of them and then we start to once we have those mastered then we start to bring the other ones into play so 
I guess the, the short version of that is when we go to learn a new track, we work on our exits first with established exit reference points. Um, we look at what that corner offers, whether it's an exit corner or an entry corner. So we establish where we're letting off the break because where we let off the break is far more important than where we go to the break. And once we've established that, then we can bring our entry up to match that. So what are good reference points? Because, you know, sometimes when you have to look up, you got to find something that's far off the track. Um, like I use a Chakwala to know every drop of oil. And yeah. when they repaved it, you completely lose your bearings, right? Where is that drop of oil I used to hit the brakes on? It's not there anymore. Now I need to find a new reference point. For, for me, it's the cones. But also, I, I have a huge problem in Chakwala, Chakwala with blind corners. You, when you're going either clockwise or counterclock, you, you have to trust that the corner is there because... You, you don't see anything until you're on yeah. top of it. Yeah. Okay, so this is great. I'm actually doing a keynote speaker talk in February at the International International Sports Yeah, International Sports Vision Association in San Diego. I'm doing I'm doing a keynote speaker talk on this because what we found out and I and I'll tell you where this came from. This is actually again a, a super interesting story and I think the story uh, will blend into what you guys are are doing. So we had one of our special forces guys out uh, training at Chuckwalla, actually. Uh, and the, the the SF guys are really interesting because we've had a few of them out there. And we've had a few that are, that are very, very quick. But honestly, a lot of them are pretty conservative. And you're thinking, that's kind of weird, right? You know, these badass guys. Well, they're trained to mitigate death. I mean, so they're afraid of everything. And they want to know why. Like, what? why am I doing this? And how does it fit into my picture? So one morning, one of them comes up to me and he says, hey, can we go out in the car? Because we did we, we, we did something called slow car driving, which we won't get into now, but we did a lot of cold. car driving is one of the best things you can do for motorcycle riding uh, when we do cart, when we do one-on-one uh, -on -one training. Uh, we don't have to get into that now because it's, it's a whole other story. But so he's like, hey, can we go around the track? And he goes, I literally want you to tell me what you're thinking when you go around the track. And this is a guy that, I've since I've gone and observed some of the things that he's he's done um, and observed the, the people that he's trained. And so I go around the track and I literally just start telling him my script. And you've heard, you know, like Rossi's like, I'm always talking to myself. Well, of course. Well, I basically told him my script. And he's like, holy shit, I had no idea that's what you were thinking. And as we sat there, and again, this is like, okay, we need to have a conversation about this because this guy trains, he's probably the number one sort of technical trainer in the US. He's got a, a pretty big company that uh, that does this. And what I, what I ended up getting from this was when they go to, for instance, kick down a door, they have reference points. So they're not, they're just not willy nilly walking into a situation. And I, I'm going to butcher this, but you know, basically, you walk up to a door. First thing is, is door hinges. There, this door kick in or out. Sure, shit, don't want to kick the door the wrong way, do you? So, you know, that's one. And then, of course, they come in, they look for a, a human silhouette. See human silhouette, then they have to look at their hands. They have to look at their hands long enough to know if they're a threat or not, right? So, there's, they have very specific references that they're going through, and. I thought, holy shit, I'm really missing the boat here. So this is probably darn near 10 years ago. So we've all heard it, right? You go there like, you know, they'll say, get your eyes up, look ahead. Okay, great. What the fuck am I supposed to be looking at? And that's what that's where 
we established what you should be looking at. So we hear all this crazy stuff of, oh, you should only be looking at your periphery or you should only be doing this. Well, when I reconciled with the Top Gun guy, I'm sorry, what the Special Forces guy said with what the Top Gun guy said, then I was like, oh, wait a minute, we've got something here. And what that simply is, is so what are the reference points? What should we be looking at? And the first one is our exit apex. In other words, where we're exiting to. I can tell you, going clockwise, truck wall to turn 10, it's the end of the curve. Where's my turning point for turn 11? It's the middle of the curve going clockwise. What's my exit reference uh, point? Um, uh, let's pick another one. Let's let's go counterclockwise at Chuckwalla. What's my exit reference point coming off of four? Uh, is the end of the it's it's the end of the curve. Of course, that's a tough one, right? Because you can't see it because of the way the track humps over. Yep. So yes, there's references that you have to anticipate, which we'll talk about in a second, and how we put those together. So the first one is your exit reference point, the place you're accelerating to. That's the most important exit reference. Second one is your apex itself. The third one is your slowest point in the corner or where you're letting off the brake. The fourth one is where your, your turn-in point. And the fifth one is your brake application point. Those are your five references. So every every corner has those five references. And, and those are the things that as you do your track walk, you're writing down. Now, not all corners you have, not all corners, you don't have the time for, to get all five of those in some corners. Some you do, like going clockwise, Chuckwalla, turn four, right? It's easy, right? You got a brake application point, you got a turn in point, a brake release. Yeah, it's it's it, because of the, the radius is so long, you've got time to do that. Well, you sure as hell don't have time to do that at nine, right? <laughs> because it's such a short corner. So once you, once you establish, for instance, I know that if I get my brake application reference for turn one um, clockwise, the rest of turn one and two is gonna take care of itself. If I get my turn in point for three correctly, then three takes care of itself. So if I get my slowest point of the corner between four and five right, they both take care of themselves. So with reference points is we need to understand, we need to understand that those are the, those, those are the five things that we're looking at. Those are the five things we're concerned with. And if you can do those, a bunch of things happen. One, you have a place to put your technique. So if, if you're only thinking about, if, if you're at the apex, you've released the brake, you've gone back to the throttle and you're, start, you're starting, you're, you're now, you've released the brake, you've gone back to the throttle, which means I'm, I'm done. I don't have, I'm not worried about decelerating anymore. I'm happy with where I'm at. Then your full attention can then go to your exit because of your exit reference, right? So if you stay in that segment, if your brain and focus stay in that segment, you get more from that segment. So five reference points, we pointed them out. And those are the things that we're writing down. So if you if you feel lost in it, well, yeah, if you feel lost in a, in a corner, it's because you don't have a reference point for it. You don't have a place to put your technique. So to your point of, there are references you have to anticipate. Let's do let's do Chuckwalla um, uh, twelve to eleven, right? Let's go let's go counter twelve to eleven, right? You can't see the freaking exit, right? And and it's nuts. So we will then put together what we call bridge references, meaning that I need to I'll add a separate reference in there 
that means I need to I need to have a reference that gets me to my next reference. So there's times that we have bridge references that will do that. Like you can do, um, well, actually, I mean, you can do that one, uh, 12 to 11. So for 12, I'm going to uh, really make sure, I know that if I get my apex in 12, that, which is basically almost the end of the curve, it's like one, one strike from the end of the curve on the right. If I hold that appropriately, when I bring the bike back to the left, I'm good. Like, in other words, I know that my exit's going to take care of, care of itself. Um, and then if I know that I hit my, so if I get that, then I know I'm going to get my apex at 11. I get my apex at 11, then I know I will have my exit because I've done, you know, you've, you've, you've lined that up enough. So yeah, there's, there's references that, you know, if you get one, you're going to get the next, but if you don't have those put together, it makes it really, really difficult. So there's one more aspect to that, which is how long that you look at a reference. And I think this is one that will shock you. And this is something that's actually going to be part of my big next steps. And one of the reasons why I got invited to do this talk was, and this all came from honestly, our, our, um, our Top Gun pilot is he heard me describing reference points. This is, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago where at Chuck Walla, he's riding around and he heard me describing, uh, you know, how we look at references and, and, and to, to a student, student leaves and we're getting ready to ride. He goes, Hey, Ken, Uda. And I'm like, uh, what? He goes, Uda. I said, Bob, I don't know what that means. He goes, Uda loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. And that's, you know, the acronym that they, that they use. And of course, it, I'm sure you've, this is now like a big business world thing, right? You know, your Uda loop. So yeah, you have to observe, meaning you have to know what your references are. This is the big one. It's the orientation. If you're missing your apex, look at your apex longer. It's, I mean, it's literally that simple. Look at your apex longer so you're lined up with it. Or like, I don't know how many times I've got riders that fade in, fade into a corner, right? You fade in, which simply means, right, you kind of crab in or fade into the corner. Yeah, look at your turning reference longer. It's pretty, I mean, it's, it's literally that simple. So you have to look at your reference long enough to get oriented to it. And then once you're oriented to it, then you can decide what you want to do with it. And then of course you act on it. So that's why the OODA loop is so, so, so important with these things. So another very long-winded answer to, uh, to reference point. I could talk, I could talk about this forever because it is, it literally is, this is what, I mean, honestly, this is what JD Beach's career, Hayden's career was all based on these vision skills. That's cool because part of the issue is a lot of people look at the reference point and then get to it and pass it. And you're still looking and trying to confirm that you got it right. And you're missing all the rest of what you need to be looking at. And that's where a lot, of, you know, I struggle. And a lot of people I talk to, they go like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the apex. Now I'm at the apex and I'm still looking down. What do I do? I should be looking at my exit. Yeah. So we give report cards for all of these and we give report cards that simply mean what should I be doing at what time? And so this is why it's important when you establish a segment, you know what you're doing in that segment. And if your brain power is all, if, if your brain power is all focused on that segment, then, then you can get all of those intricate things from it. So if, for instance, when you apply the brakes, you're only worried about how you're building brake pressure, how much brake pressure, and then you're reconciling that with your turn-in point. And once you get your turn-in point, then how your vision goes to your apex, how you're going to release the brake, 
how much brake pressure you need, how much body input you're going to have to have. So we give specific report cards for each one of those references that tells you how, how do I know I did it right? And more importantly, when can I release that to go to the next reference point? For me, I look at it until I f- I'm for sure convinced I'm going to hit it. So even even Done. yeah, even breaking points. Yeah, I look at yeah. the, I look at the two cones and I go like, okay, I'm about to hit that. I'm I'm going to hit it. And I know I'm going to hit it because I know where it is now, and that's when I look at the next one. Yeah, I mean, in that you know, depending on the corner, right? You're traveling anywhere between you know seventy to one hundred and forty feet a second. And it takes your brain anywhere between three and a half to five tenths to to you know to absorb this and move to the next thing. So yeah, that's why again, how it's like to the double cones. To your point, right? You want to be parallel with the cones before the cones, not at the cones. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then again, and then what? Are the, then again, depending on the corner, what control are you using at that point? So yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's, this is why vision is such, it's so high up on the fundamentals and within vision and focus is, uh, the reference points. I, I was and, trying, I was trying and, and, uh, remember the, the Matt Milan interview where, where he said, dude, we're not thinking about that corner we're on. We're already thinking, you know, two corners ahead, because if you're going to start thinking about that corner, it's too late. You, you're traveling too fast. Yeah, I think, again, this goes back to where if you have a central reference for that corner, you know that if you get that one <clears throat> reference, you're good. I mean, you, 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 it's like if you get, again, we'll use Chuck Wall again, like um, 16, 17. I know that if I get the slowest point in 16, right, and the apex is 17, right, I'm good. And as soon as I start to accelerate, yeah, then I can worry about turn one. It, it's, I'm done. It's done. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. For for me, I, I think you answered my biggest question is, how do you know the turn is still there in Chakawala? <laughs> because I, I can't trust anything I, I can't see. And, and that's that's the biggest deal for me in Chakawala is, is trusting the corner is still there. But yeah, if, if you use intermediate reference points, by the time right. you get to that corner, it's there. You're going to look wherever you need to look. Yeah. Or you can, again, there's a combination of things that we have, like, for instance, field references, right? So you know that, um, like, I'll try to give a good one. Uh, oh, since you guys can understand it, like going clockwise again, 11 to 12. You know when you go from 11 to 12, and there's that momentary G, kind of a G out in 12, right? Once I once I know that, I'm good. Like, I know, that I, I, know I can accelerate as hard as I want because the bike is set. So that's, that's a place where I'm using a fuel reference to know that I'm good to go. So... When you start to combine both of those things, it's it's pretty powerful. There, there are corners. So that, you mentioned earlier. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Gal. Uh, there, there are corners that I think I'm super slow and I and I can go faster and I don't know how. <clears throat> if it's if you're not corner. using numbers, if you're going <laughs> clockwise, so sorry, I'm hijacking the interview. You're going you're going down from Crash Mountain. They call it. Yeah. You're going down from Crash Mountain, and you then you have the right corner. And over yeah, there, yeah. I always um, go in a straight line all the way down, and then I turn the bike, and I know that I'm hitting the apex in a straight line, and then I just take take the bike down all the way, and it it's on my boot, um, and uh, my boot is up is up against the curb, uh, and then I accelerate out, uh, and I always think that I can go faster, but I'm limited by my boot dragging, 
So is is there a way? Is there a secret to that corner to go to go faster on that thing? Because it, it looks like thirty miles an hour, but you know the bike is all the way you know on its side. So a couple things, yeah. Ten, ten. It's funny. Like I don't know. I I've ten's one of those corners clockwise that I always think I suck in. It's just like I never feel like I get it right. But to answer your question, it, it, so one, you have to look at what kind of corner is that? It's an exit corner. Okay, so if it's an exit corner, I mean, the acceleration zone is longer than the deceleration zone. Then what are the report cards for an exit corner? The report cards are, can I start positive acceleration past the apex? Okay, so that so I need to be able to do that. So typically, I can almost think, I can almost tell you what you're doing is you're turning in too late and you're running, you end up with lean angle at the slowest point instead of taking away lean angle at the slowest point. So what I would describe to you or what you're describing, because if you're if your boots on the ground and you're like, I can't, I can't do anything, can't accelerate, more than likely you've you've gone down the hill and you've turned in too late. That's a big tendency there is you actually I don't want to say you want to turn in early, <clears throat> but you want to be prepared for acceleration early. So because it's an exit corner. So if you're not accelerating or starting to accelerate past the apex, you're too late. So that's the first thing that we look at. And then are you able to um, uh, take away lean angle when you do that? And then the other thing is, are you able to take weight off of your inside arm? And if there's weight on your inside arm, then the bike's not gonna steer and you're gonna have to run lean angle. And then you run more lean angle than you need to for that speed. Okay. I, think I would have said smaller feet, see, but that's the difference between a great coach and me. <laughs> I think you answered my question. Because I try to cut the corner, I, I just go in a straight line down. And then I'm, I find myself in the apex, and then I just abruptly the turn the bike. And I, I think yeah, you're late, and then when you're late, you're abrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, Ken, you you just mentioned actually the uh, the scorecard, um, and, and earlier you said you have a kind of a goofy process for uh, assessing the rider or assessing them in a turn. Talk to us a little more about that. Um, so when we were doing a lot of the, the pro camps and we were doing some of the things with, the, with, with, actually I do this with anybody if I can, even if I'm working with somebody one-on-one -on -one at a track day is normally I have a good enough relationship with the track that we'll get there early and they'll let me take some, basically some siding laps before the day starts. And the way that works is I'll put them in a car, whether it's their car, my car, uh, <laughs> not my track car. But uh, we don't need them driving. We don't need them driving that. But even a rental car doesn't matter. And we do something what we call slow car driving. And, and what slow car driving is is we'll go around the track literally at thirty-five or forty miles an hour. And we in in in, in two corners, I can basically see where the day is going to go. How you drive is how you ride. I've done it with everyone, whether it's Hayden, JD, um, Jake, Valentin, does not matter. How you how you drive is how you ride. The difference is, is I can sit there and be right seat with them. And I can, we're, we're basically sharing the same time and space. We're sharing the same feel. And this is also why I don't, I've tried using comms. I don't use comms because with comms, we're not using, the, we're not in the same time and space. So that's why I don't use comms because by the time I've said something to them, there's a second or a second and a half difference and it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So we'll evaluate them basically in a car and they'll, I can tell what a person's going to do or what they're doing in a couple of corners based on how they turn in, how abrupt they are, um, how they're using their eyes. 
And we can do that literally in 10 minutes on a very slow car drive around the track. It is a, it's an amazing shortcut. If we can't do that, then of course we're going to do a lead follow session um, where I'll, again, I have to evaluate them to find out what's holding them back. I'm not going to arbitrarily tell them what to do. So the first session is kind of, look, we're going to go out for a couple laps. Um, I'm going to let you buy and then let's get you on film and let's see, let's see what's going on. And then we'll go from there. But the car is huge. Um, the car is massive. Um, I can't tell you how many laps I have with, you know, Hayden and JD and all those guys in, in car driving. Um, didn't matter the car, uh, but we would spend many, many years uh, doing it. I did actually deal, I, I can remember I did a, a slow car drive with Cameron Bobier at Thunder Hill one year during the during the tire test when they ran Dunlop tire test at Thunder Hill and uh, he broke the track record that day. So yeah, it works. So why does slow car drive work? You would expect, I would expect like we make them drive the car fast because that's nope. how they're going to go on the bike. No, you've got to be able to, if, if you can't do something slow, you're not going to be able to do it fast. And it, it, it um, you, you've, you have to be, to be able to train correctly, you've got to be able to train at a, at a pace your brain can process. It's, it's like, you're, you're not, you know, like a firefighter, right? If you're going to be a firefighter the first day, they don't put you in a burning building, right? There's no way. You don't have the techniques or habits of the brain processing. So we'll do it at a slow speed. So we have time to spend time in that zone, building the appropriate feel and report cards in that zone. And you can't do it at speed. It has to be done at a very slow pace. Um, yeah, I mean, it's why, again, uh, observing some of these, some of these um, SF guys, right? When they do, when they do some uh, door kicking, right? They'll actually walk the whole process. Um, at least the ones I've I've observed, right? So they walk it before they do it at speed. So, yeah, we do slow car driving. It's fantastic. Um, and you you can you can well. The funny part is you you organically build a lot of speed very quickly because of how quickly we how quick we can make this process happen. I wonder if, what they do with the uh, Air Force school, because you can't fly a plane too slow. <laughs> no, well, that's why they have trainers, right? I know, so they start them in slow planes, and um, yeah, they start them in slow planes, and uh, then they then they then they move up from there. So, and, and here's another hack for you: when you when you come in to track day in the morning, just ask the organizers if you can help put the cones on the track. Yep. So I, I did it with Dale, and, and I put the, t the the cones on the track in the morning, and that helped a lot. You you look at the asphalt, you see what's going on there before you, you even start riding. Uh, and it, it's just a small hack that, you know, just help out and, and get, you know, get more knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah, you literally find out where the apexes are. You find out where the exits are. It's, it's fantastic. And those are, you know, when we do track walks, um, before Motor America, what we're really looking for, we're, we're, we're kind of dumbing it down to where our exit apex is and where our turn-in apex is, or our turn-in reference point. If you get your turn-in reference and you get your exit, pretty much the rest of the corner takes care of itself. And again, there's going to be some places where we're going to have to look for um, uh, some bridge references. Like, well, we were just at Jersey, right? So if you look at Jersey, uh, between turn seven and turn nine, we you can't see anything so we had to put together like three specific places um 
three specific bridge references that can, that way the, the, the writer had something to always be engaged with. I have a, I have another question. Let's switch gears. You own the Kawasaki dealership. Uh, so you're a pretty good businessman too. Uh, and, and you, well, kinda, <laughs> well, you, you ended up, I think you said one time it was the number five Kawasaki dealership in the country. Um, yeah. how, how is it? Have you ever had a customer come in and said, Hey, I'm new to this. Can you sell me a ZX 10? All the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that store kind of uh, morphed from, you know, I was in the car business and, you know, running stores and I kind of got tired of seeing other people make a lot of money. And so I thought, well, you know what? I've been to motorcycles. Um, I got offered this motorcycle store and we we're supposed to be, we were supposed to be Cowie and Yamaha. And it turned out that uh, Yamaha's uh, letter of intent uh, did not go through or we didn't, we had a letter of intent, but it didn't happen. So we had to make it run on Cowie. And we did make it run on Cowie. Uh, it was actually in the beginning was, was good. We had basically had the store five years. The first three years were amazing, fantastic. And then two things happened. One was uh, people don't remember it probably, but there was a dot-com bust. So the dot-com bust as well as 9-11. And once that happened, yeah, things things really went, things went pretty bad in the Bay Area. And yeah, I mean, to your point, yes, we've always had a lot of people come in and want to buy big bikes and we would do our best to steer them away or, and, it, and honestly it worked most of the time. Um, at that time, Cali really didn't have you know, we had a CX-9 at the time. Um, yeah, we had, we had, we had, you know, we had the the 10s uh, or the, the ZX-12 at the time. Uh, and that was definitely a different market. Um, those people typically had more experience. But yeah, we would try to steer them to a 600 and Cali actually had a very, very good 600. Uh, and then, then you started a ra- racing in Aprilia Mila R while still owning a Kawasaki <laughs> dealership. Did you get a letter from Kawasaki saying, uh, you know, Ken, we, we have bikes too here. Yeah, you know, that was that was an interesting time. Um, so I'd come off of a pretty good uh, years, couple years at AFM. And I I had, um, I think I had, I was racing a couple classes, 600 and a twin. And I had one open twins. And I think I won 600, 600 classes uh, that year as well. And we had done a deal before the motorcycle dealership thing happened. And I knew my time was going to be a little bit more limited. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty cool thing where I got offered to ride for Scuderia. Uh, Don Lemlin offered me to ride this bike. Uh, he really wanted the open twins championship. Honestly, I didn't care about it. I wanted to the Pacific because that's where, you know, I had the number one plate always eluded me the number two, like four times, but uh, never got the number one plate. And yeah, it was, it was just a cool bike to ride handled incredibly well. We got it on the podium actually in front of the Pacific. Um, but that ended bike ended up having motor problems. And I think I finished the year out on a Cali to that, to your point. <laughs> Do you think it had a motor problems because it was an Italian motorcycle? I want, I just want to see it in the bill's face. <laughs> that, that thing was old school. <laughs> that thing was old school Italian. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's funny because I remember coming out for the first AFM practice with that thing and it did handle wonderfully. I mean, we, we got the handling on that bike pretty going pretty well. Uh, but I remember one of my Formula Pacific uh, uh, competitors coming up to me after one of the practices goes, dude, that thing's slower than your freaking 600 was. 
So that was a little bit that was a little bit disappointing, but uh, we did put it on the Fire Pacific box. But uh, yeah, and, and I don't remember. It was some weird dry sump oil system thing. Freaking launched connecting rods. I don't remember what it was, but yeah, that 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 didn't that didn't end well. Yeah. So Gal's been making fun of me for owning Italian bikes forever because he's a Suzuki guy. Now all of a sudden he bought a Bimoto. Oh, hold on. I bought so, a, I bought a Kawasaki. Know, it is who laughs last. I, I bought a Kawasaki. It just says Bimoto on the side. Oh, there we go. Kawasaki motor. <laughs> Let's see how many electric gremlins you get. Yeah, it's, it's all Kawasaki inside. It Motor, the electronics, dash. It's all Kawasaki. Put together by Italians. Yeah, put sure, together by Italian. Italians. Yeah. You're going to pay for that at some point. <laughs> That's all right. It's just so speaking of which, Ken, what, what are your favorite bikes nowadays? Like top three, top five, don't you know, I'm I'm pretty spoiled. Um I mean I, I mean uh yeah, I am pretty spoiled, but there's a couple of bikes that I'll I'll say that'll surprise you. I mean, I've had a great relationship with Graves Motorsports for probably ten years now. I've ridden a lot of variations of their bikes. I've ridden a lot of their R6s, I've ridden their ZX6s, um, I've ridden actually their four hundreds, I've ridden their ZX tens big fan of the grave stuff i mean it, it's hard to be a proper properly prepared graves bike they're just i mean i watched hayden gillum do it hayden gillum i mean this is a great story i mean since you guys know chuck walla i mean hayden back in 2018 took a stock graves bike um that we'd be hard i think all we did was change the fork springs on the thing and this is this is in 2018 um i think he did i think he did a 43.8 back in 2018 on a 600. Bone, I mean, basically a Graves bike back then. I mean, everybody's like, oh, you know, 45s and 46s, 600. Now he was in the high 43s, low 44s. And they're just a wonderful bike. So I'm a big fan of, they're just prepared so well. So it can't be the Graves bike. Um, I also um, have ridden upright bikes for a really long time. And we, you know, we rode up, we started riding upright bikes um, uh, basically when the Yamaha school got school got uh, formed with Dick and I, and we had FC ones, we've got a lot of laps on FC ones. I got a lot of laps on FC tens. So I'm kind of a big fan of, of that. We were on the, we, you know, we were on the bikes for four to five hours a day. And so the sport bike thing got kind of got old at that point. So upright bikes, big fan of them. Um, you know, I actually, I have, I think I, I own three FC ones right now. So uh, I just, they're, you can still rip on the things and they're they're super fun. They never break, knock on wood. Um, but the bike, the other bike that will surprise you that we also do a lot of training on is uh, Ninja 400. So we do a lot of things with Ninja 400s and um, we've come up with a setup on those bikes that works really well. Uh, and we put a lot of people on Ninja 400s. I mean, we do, whether it's... Um, even some of the pro riders, when we did a lot of the pro training, that was a whole other thing. We made them ride a lot of different bikes, um, a lot of different circumstances. But you can take a, a stock Ninja 400. And honestly, if you can't have fun with a stock Ninja 400, there's something wrong with you. Um, I mean, we we take them and we put a front brake on them, front brake, brake line, brake pads, fluid, literally set of put a rear sets on it and a set of Q3s or Q5s and ride it and stock suspension, everything. And you'd be shocked how fast you can go on these things. And um, yeah, it is such a fun motorcycle to ride. So 
Uh, I guess the answer is pretty much. What's that? Did you try the new one, the four cylinder one? I tried the new one yet. No, I haven't tried the new one yet. Yeah, that I'm obviously hearing really good things about that. So we'll see how that one goes. I think I'll get my leg over one of those, over one of those probably in December. But uh, yeah, so any any Graves bike, um, upright bikes, FC1, huge fan of FC10. FC10 needs a lot more prep than an FC1, uh, weirdly. Um, and then the Ninja 400, that's kind of, those are my go-to, my go-to bikes. Um, I mean, there's so many, there's so many great bikes. I mean, dude, I rode a, I rode a, you know, M1000RR. Holy crap. What a wonderful motorcycle. Any V4S, you know, Ducati is also, holy crap. You know, the 22 and up V4S, it's a freaking race bike. I mean, they're wonderful. The big thing with the thousands, just to, just to mention that is we actually, as far as training is concerned, we have to take a lot of people off the big bikes because they're just too fast, right? They spend all of their brain space literally surviving. And it, and of course, it's easy to get in the lap time game with that. So we take a lot of people off those bikes for training because they're just, they're, their brain can't absorb the training and the speed of those, speed of those bikes. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I actually went the uh, Ducati 848 route as my first track bike. Then I went to a Panigale V2 and I had to go back to an R6 because I, I couldn't learn anything. All I was trying to do is not let the bike buck me when I was braking and try to stay on it when I was accelerating. That was all my focus. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's that that's to that point, right? In, in the those are great motorcycles, right? The V2 is just a wonderful bike, but it's not slow. I mean, they make 150 horsepower, right? So yeah, you've got to have something that you can that your brain can process what the hell is going on. Otherwise, you're you're going to severely limit your growth. Um, it's just going to take you a lot longer to improve. I, I had the same the same yeah. thing. I, for years, I rode litter bikes. Um, I still have I still have one, but then I got a 750 GSXR 750, and the entire day it was you know that thing was so cute. It it was like you you have time to do everything. Um, yeah, I'll actually, I'll add that bike to the list. Uh, you can't go wrong with the G6R 750. I just think they're a fantastic motorcycle. Yeah. And, and then I got, and then I got my, uh, hypercycle Carrie Andrews special and it was back oh, to, perfect. holy crap, that thing is too fast. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I bet. Uh, I actually built the bad habit of, of, uh, not opening the throttle all the way out because the bike was too powerful. It took me six months to unlearn that habit and actually take the throttle to the stop on exits when I had the 600 after the big bikes. It's now that I know what I know, I wish I started on a 400 or yep. even a 250 at the time. Yeah, you've got to be, I mean, you've got to be in a position to process it. I mean, if you can't ride a Ninja 400 sort of near the limit, you sure as hell are not going to ride a 600 at the limit. Can't ride a 600 near the limit, you sure as hell are not going to ride a 1,000 at the limit. Uh, and again, what it does is it actually is a, is a, is a step backwards, uh, learning wise. Look, look, back in the day, Carl Lowry went 119 on an R6 in Willow. So it, it's not a problem of they're not fast enough. <laughs> Good old Willow. Love Willow. <laughs> they're repaving it now. I, I think, think Sean they, Dylan Kelly already. did 125 or a 126 at Fontana when we still had Fontana. On a 600. Yeah. 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 I, Unbelievable. I, yeah. I remember those days. I mean, how fast those guys were crazy, crazy fast there. They, they just, I think they finished repaving Big Willow. 
So I, I think uh, I mean, we were talking about that. Uh, uh, Dustin and I were talking about that the other night. Big Willow. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm a fan of that track. I, it's just old school badass. Um, I think, yeah, you want to wake some people up. Go, let's go do a freaking Boat American National there. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be up for that. But, um, you know, it's, it's I, I think it's, I think it's just a very cool track. They, they ran AMA over there back in the 90s, I think. Yep. Uh, yep. And, those guys were going 119 back in the 90s. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and I believe Ben Spees went uh, an unofficial 117 over there one time when he was testing the 2006 Tier 6 on 1000. It was an unofficial test. Um, but yeah, that, that track, I think, is it. it's the most fun you can have, especially if you bring a leader bike over there. You don't have to be a good rider. <laughs> I see you shaking your head. You're like, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, that track, I think that track is incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, it seems like, oh, it's well, it's nine turns, whatever. But, you know, it, it starts off with obviously two, right? How easy is it to get lost in two? And two's, two's one of those corners that I've talked about that it is one of the few corners in America that you can actually, yeah, you can get a better lap time by increasing your roll speed through it. There's very few corners that you can do that. Um, the exit's blind. And then you've got the whole three, four, five complex, which I think four is one of the most difficult corners on that track, personally. I mean, eight is eight obviously is is uh a whole nother level of 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 you know pucker factor. <laughs> but once you get some things figured out in eight, eight's not that bad. Um, and I actually think eight to nine, right? Once you get your your eyes moving appropriately and have the right references, eight and nine's not that bad. It's insanely quick. Um but yeah, I think that track is uh, is super fun, super fun track. It's a good track to learn to be at speed in a turn. Oh my God, yes, your sense of speed. Well, you go you go there and then go anywhere else, it's going to feel slow. Yeah. yeah, I actually had issues in turn eight over there where putting your knee out would take me offline. <laughs> so, Carrie Andrew said, just keep your body in the fairing. It, it it just it's just too you're you're one sixty on your knee over there, so just just keep the body in the fairing, uh, and that helped. And then turn nine, obviously, I mean <clears throat> that thing's blind. <clears throat> you don't know where it starts, or you you have to start guessing where it starts. And then we, we heard from Josh Hayes that he did it on rhythm. He would be counting seconds between turn eight and turn nine to figure out where to start turning. Uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to doing it another track day over there and maybe someone would bring back the old WSMC. <laughs> oh, dude, that, I mean, that was an epic time, right? Racing every month. I mean, and then the amount of, I mean, that was, that was an epic, epic time. Yeah. I didn't have that many laps. I mean, I, I think I've raced there two or three or four times. I didn't race there a bunch, but I did ride there, did ride there quite a bit. I, I think now with Fontana gone, this is, Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the only racetrack in Southern California where you can actually go out six gear. Uh, correct. Yeah, I mean, it let yeah, even Buttonwillow. If even if you ran the long way at Buttonwillow, you can't really get into six there. Um, a little bit, but it's that's kind of a sketch deal. Nobody really runs that config. Um, but yeah, Willow's Willow's definitely no joke. Um, it is very, very quick. Yeah. So it, we, we really need, need that racetrack to stay around. Agreed. 
Any news on the uh, second track in Big Willow, by the way? It keeps getting delayed. Um, I'm sorry, in, in Willow Springs, I should say, not Big Willow. I keep getting them mixed up. You mean Button Willow? Or... Button Willow. I don't know anything about that one. Um, I know, I don't know, I know they, they. Um, I don't even know if it's paved, quite honestly. I haven't, I haven't checked in on that one in a while. It was supposed to be done a year ago. And then I know they ran into some problems and there was some drainage and then some freaking turtle thing, I think. I don't know. But I, I don't know what's up with that one. Yeah, there was some sort of rat habitat that they had to preserve yes. between the turns. Yes, and they correct. made a little island and that kept the rat people happy. Um, rat didn't want to relocate, I guess. But I don't think it's paved yet. I heard there was a big issue with finding the equipment. You know, the, the few companies that can pave an actual racetrack properly are... are are not that available, I guess. But that, yeah, that is a whole other that is a whole other topic. Yeah, I don't know much about that part. I just I know that it's not it's not done yet. But I don't know the scoop on that one. We we, we all know we are, have to. Aren't they building a second one in Chakwala too? I mean, there's a plan for it. I don't know. I think I think yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I got I was privy to some of that stuff years and years ago. I think the second track at at Chukwala, if it I I don't I'd be surprised if it happened. Leave it at that. Wow. What are what are your top five bike modifications to go faster for people that are not racers? Ooh, good question. Um, for not racers, so they're not they're but doing track days. Yeah. Yeah. Like cup for, holders. I mean, oh, oh. Uh, at the track. I mean, first and <laughs> foremost is tires. Um, I think I think tires having good tires is huge. Uh, and then the second one I think would be I'll, I'll put brake pads and brake fluid uh, kind of together. So if you've got you know good tires, um, you've got brake pad, brake pads and brake fluid. I think those are those two are huge. Um, the third one I would say would be ergonomics. So something that gets you comfortable on the bike, whether it's rear sets or clip-ons, but something that allows you to ride the bike uh, pretty well. Um, so that's let's see, that's three. Um, Four, I would go with mapping, right? So I'm not necessarily looking at an ECU flash, but something that allows appropriate um, throttle response, engine braking, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I would say the fifth one would probably be suspension. Nice. That That's actually, those are the first four that I did to my 750 as soon as I got it. <laughs> so. There you go. <laughs> uh, now we have... Uh, I did. I did something that maybe I shouldn't have done, uh, and I went to the internet and I said, "Hey, we're we're having Ken Hill uh, on our podcast. Uh, do you have any questions?" Unfortunately, I, I believe I went to the wrong. Yeah, you do. Unfortunately, I bet you do have. I bet you do have questions. Yeah, uh, I think I went to the wrong place on the internet because the internet has all those wonderful and uh, strange islands in there, and one of them is the 13x forum. Uh, which is the Wira form, and people over there are—they uh, are knowledgeable, but they're—they're they're not very serious, are they? <laughs> well, they're—they're they're serious about everything but motorcycles. Um, <laughs> those guys are great. I mean, I've—I've I've been on the Wira, the Wira PBS for for many many years, and it's great. I mean, if you want to find out like what's the best barbecue sauce, or you know what the best trailer hitch, uh, or how to re-roof your house, those are the guys. Um, there's no doubt. And then, you know, the, the motorcycle stuff is, is like fourth, fourth or fifth tier 
or yeah, whether it's whether it's you know pie or cake or whatever the hell it is. So yeah, let's uh, let's 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 um, let's appease those guys. What do you got? <laughs> okay, the first question was, who is Ken Hill? Who is Ken Hill? Great question. Um, yeah, that's kind of a long-standing joke. I mean, I, I mean, I, I kind of lay low. I don't advertise. Um, I work at being the best, and the right people find me. Uh, I mean, I'm booked. I'm already booked for a couple of years, the next couple of years. So, um, I mean, I must be doing something right if that's the case. And even my racing career, right? I, I you know, local club guy in in, um, in Northern California, did a few years of the AMA stuff. Um, but yeah, I've kind of flown under the radar. I don't, I, I'm the worst self promoter in the world. Um, my only concern is, is getting myself better and getting my clients better. Uh, and it's not how many, uh, trust me, it's not what my website looks like or how many Instagram followers I have. Uh, the second one is, um, tips for novices to attempt to dunk, dunk stand up wheelies at track days. So please do not attempt wheelies on track days. You will get kicked out. But Yes, you will. Yeah, you want to practice wheelies? I mean, uh, then get a little mini bike, uh, get a little pit bike and practice wheelies in a parking lot. I think that's the way to do that. Or even a freaking bicycle, right? You got to learn to balance point. Uh, but yeah, track day. You know, it's funny. Like it's I get this question all the time. It's like, um, I mean, I know wheelies are cool. Um, and I trust me, I like I like doing wheelies just like the next guy. Actually, I learned wheelies at the Freddy School. Uh, I was uh, I was given a lot of shit uh, because uh, I couldn't do wheelies. And so yes, I started uh, working on my wheelie game there and perfected it kind of at the Yamaha School. Um, notice that those are both schools, right? I had to practice these things. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think wheelies are. Uh, if you've got 199 things to work on, um, wheelies are probably like 190. Okay, next next question is, uh, why do we drive on parkways and park in driveways? <laughs> Great question. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not a, a, a transportation engineer. Um, that's a great question that I don't have an answer to that I just, uh, I blindly ignore that and just uh, do my thing. So, you see, there's some things that I, I am absolutely not the expert on. I'm a dumb shit with a bunch of things. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Oh. Oh my God! It's a long. This is a long one. Dave K. Stock compression on four it. pages of those. Yeah, stock compression on a. I, I skipped the ones that we can't read on air. Uh, but we'll we'll get we'll get an answer for you guys. Uh, stock compression right, on it. Because we have children watching. Yeah, 2023 GSXR 1000 is claimed at 13 to two to one. 13.2 to one, uh, with a claimed horsepower of 200 horsepower, 76. Uh, Newton meter of, okay, this is, you know, I think I'm going to skip that question. 55.1 uh, millimeter bore and stroke and the motor being well known by tuners and the aftermarket with the MA allowed modifications and the VPMGP spec fuel. If you put a banana in the tail, okay, this is not going to the. Oh, yeah, you put a banana in the tailpipe, will it even run? Yeah, that's, that's not, that's not appropriate uh geometry and clicker settings for a 2008 r6 from prm oh okay yeah i think i actually remember that um stock suspension i'm assuming i uh, i'm assuming so yeah got it see so actually i remember that from the magazine days 
I can almost tell you that, um, let's see, rebound is, is like two clicks out on rebound on the forks, three clicks out. High speed, because those had high speed and low speed compression in the forks. Low speed was like, I think around eight to 10. High speed was two and a half turns. Same thing in the rear. Uh, rebound was like at four. Um, high speed was about two and a half turns. And low speed was like at 10. <laughs> okay. Brent A. I too, I, I've, done, I've, I've ridden those bikes a lot. <laughs> Brent A is asking, when can we get some more merch? So, again, I'm the worst self-promoter in the world. If you go to my website, there actually is a fourth wall link for merchandise. And you can go there and buy it whenever you want. Uh, I'm just lame and I don't advertise it. I'm a dumbass. So, okay. Uh, so yeah, well, let's mention that it is uh, khcoaching.com, right? Ken yep. Hill Coaching, yep. the two letters. And there's something we'll talk. Coaching. Yeah, and we'll talk about what some of the next steps are because I, I do have a bunch of new next new next steps going. Okay, Rising has an actual question. Uh, what are some drills I can run on my XR100 on dirt? Everything. Um, I mean, it, it's is one of the best tools to to mess around with. You can do braking drills, you can do acceleration drills, you can do initial throttle drills, initial brake drills. Um, you can literally throw four cones out and do entry and exit corners. You can work on your vision. I mean, you can literally throw four cones down in a parking lot and or, or in the dirt and practice all these different things. Make up a, you know, get a list and think about the things that you deliberately want to do. The hardest, the, the thing, the mistake people make is trying to do everything. Do one day, just working on exits, meaning that you got four cones down and then you basically are driving past every cone. Next one, you can do brake pressure turn in. Then you can do weight off of your inside arm. Then you can do eyes, right? You can, yeah, people, people think you can only get good being out on track when in fact, most of the work is done off the track. And here you can simply just get an XR100 in a freaking parking lot with four cones and you can do it all. So the next question from PJ Zock was actually almost the same question. Uh, my 15-year-old is taking his first parking lot laps on the Grom. Plan to get rid uh, rid of him uh, to do a cart track when he's ready. What are three things that would fo focus on with his instruction this early on? Yeah, braking, 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 braking. So braking and vision. If run run drills where you can use the brakes, like have them, we have a very specific um, way that we do our braking drill. So we'll put cones out and then we have them work on initial braking, end of braking, you know, where you stop. Um, then we have work on harder braking, um, but you basically they put together a brake drill where they have to work on initial braking, end of braking, how they build maximum brake pressure, focusing all on where you let off the brake. I, I, I can't emphasize how much confidence that gives people because that then allows them to feel like they can get out of a situation. So the number one is braking. Second one would be vision. Um, and then more than likely the third one in that case would be probably some acceleration drills backed up with um, braking. In other words, you're doing something, but then you're mitigating it with, with the braking. Okay. Lots to be done there. Out of spec is asking, uh, what do you think are some of the, most perceptive myths, half-truths, or misconceptions that get shared as bad advice? I think, 
I think the biggest one is that you can't improve unless you started writing when you're three years old, right? In other words, you know, where does say natural talent, you know, come from? And it's funny because we, we now know where natural, I know now, I now know where natural talent comes from because we, we, we proved it. And I'll share that secret with you, but it's, it's, I think one is that you can't improve, right? So it's like, oh, I'm 50 years old. I've never ridden before. I'm never going to get good. It's bullshit, right? If you treat it like a sport and you treat it with reps and fundamentals, you're, you will improve. So I think that's probably the biggest one. Second one is I would say that you have to have really top-notch new equipment um, or the latest bike to get good. Um, I think that you can ride, like, again, the Ninja 400 thing. You can buy a Ninja 400 and you can do 20 track days a year on maybe one or two sets of tires and not really have to touch the thing and get and get pretty good. So I think you don't have to necessarily have the best equipment in the world. Um, and then I would say the I would we'll just do one more on that. The, the big, biggest other myth is, um, you don't you don't need to train or you don't need a perfect you don't need professional coaching. I don't know of any other sport where, you know, you can go buy something lethal and not get trained for it. Um, it's, it's insane. Right. And it's funny. Cause you're like, I want to play golf. What do you do? You get golf lessons. You go want to play tennis. You get a tennis coach. I mean, you, every other sport cycling, you get a cycling coach, right? I mean, it's just anything that you do with any seriousness, you get a coach, but our sport that has lethal consequences, lethal consequences, you can go buy a BMW 1000. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, or wait a minute, you can't buy a BMW 1000 right now. Anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, that that you don't get trained for. So I, I think that's the one of the biggest things is that we don't take our sport seriously enough. We don't take the consequences into play, um, and that you just think that you could fake your way through it, and you can't. You you can't. Um, there's just there's you just doesn't work. So. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Before you spend two grands on an exhaust, buy yourself a a school session. Ah, uh, you know it's insane, right? It's like I again, yeah. You spend two grand on a you spend two grand on a pipe, and guess what? You're still breaking two hundred fifty feet too early. I mean, it's just it's just you know, of course, you put a pipe on your bike and it's faster. Now you're breaking two hundred seventy five feet too early. So it's just it's just yeah, it's it's nuts. Yeah, people definitely have the priorities backwards on that. Uh, and then the last, the very last question from the forum is, uh, if you got a lunch combo that has a sandwich and a fries and it comes with a pickle, when do you eat the pickle? I eat pickle first. Um, well, it depends. If it's barbecue, it's going to be intermixed, but typically I'll eat the pickle first. But if it's barbecue, um, I'll, I'll intermix the pickle within the barbecue. Mm. Well, so there you go, folks. There's like two pages of when do you eat the pickle and God, you got, you got your answers. <laughs> that's the way to do it <laughs> from the head coach yeah. so can you're mentioning some things that uh you're planning on so yeah so my my trajectory has changed a little bit here at the end of 23 and uh, you know i've been doing one-on-one -on -one coaching um for, for a really long time i mean again that's i mentioned i put my kids through school um pay my mortgage that way and it's not that i haven't learned everything because you know, my goal, whenever I do a day, it doesn't matter who it's with is I want to learn something. And if I don't learn something then I've done something wrong, and because I want to keep adding it to my notebook of like, what, what can I improve with? And, but I'm at a point now where that list is so long that I'm not, I personally, I'm not getting better. And 
you know, I had a part ownership of a track day company in Washington. Uh, I've been doing online coaching. I've been doing online coaching for over 10 years and I was doing it a little bit more officially with the blaze platform. And it's, 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 they're great. Right. And it was a little bit uh, proof of concept to make sure that you could see how that program would work. And the, the, the issue is, is, and it's a great problem. I'm not complaining that I'm too busy. And the more I say no, the busier I get. Well, this year, um, you know, I wanted to back away from the track day company. Um, and I realized that this was an opportunity to kind of make a little bit of a cleaner break. I, so sold my half of the track day company to my partner. Um, uh, I'm out of the, the online training program. I'm out of the blaze program. I think it's a great program. And I actually have one of my other instructors that, that kind of filled my spot and I need to get better. Um, there's a lot of things that I need to do. Um, there's nothing wrong with my, like my health, but I want to get fitter. Um, I have a knee replacement coming up in November that I, you know, I got to take time to, to make sure that's good. Um, I've got a lot to write. I have, a, I mean, I've neglected my podcasts. Uh, my podcast list just keeps getting bigger. And so basically where I'm going is I'm going to be doing a lot less one-on-one -on -one training at the track. And I'm going to be working more on the writing uh, in, the, in the podcast. Um, I've got a Substack that I've I've got started. Um, Substack will get launched probably next month, and that way I I can combine my writing, I can combine my videos, and I can combine all of my podcasts into one one area, uh, and make that a little bit more individualized. And I'm still working with the team uh, next year. CJ LaRoche, uh, I've got a nice little contract with him. Uh, and he's the model student. I mean, here's this is just absolute model circumstance. Um, and that way I can continue to hone my last 0.01%. Um, so again, it's not that that I want, want to get away from the one-on-ones. It's just I need to step back and work on myself. And I will need to work on all these things that I've been accumulating. And I need to get pen to paper, um, all the book project that's coming out. Um, I wrote those guides, which you know, nobody's, nobody's really seen them, but I've got these six gigantic guides that I was a data dump for my brain um, that I've done. Um, and so, again, I just need to get a little bit more organized and concentrate again on my next steps, have more writing available for people, um, and again, step up on the podcast. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was going to say that... A couple of things. One is that the best thing you can do is work on yourself. You're you're the only one that's you know taking, taking yourself you know for to the next you know wherever we're going. Uh, so uh, self improvement is always something that pays dividends. Uh, and then your podcast, yeah, it's it's because what am I going to listen to now on my on my drive to work and home? Come on, you gotta you gotta give me some something here. So, so many to do. I have so many to do. And I, I, you know, in the podcast are really interesting. So the podcast came about, um, however many years ago it is like seven years, like before podcasting was a thing. And I read something where this is back when the Michelin, the Bridgestone switch, the Bridgestone, the Michelin switch was happening. And a really good writer wrote that the difference between the Michelin and the Bridgestones was now, you know, they, they, I, I think it was, they, um, the Michelins don't allow you to break to the apex anymore. And I'm like, that's just the dumbest statement that I'd ever heard. So it's like, I got to tell somebody. <laughs> and so, you know, I started this, 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 you know, dumbass podcast. And then, you know, again, I was dealing with my, my peer group at the time. 
and my my Yale contact said, "Hey, let me let me put you in touch with somebody that that has actually some some objective you know psychology on this." And so we you know we pinned down what the appropriate amount of time was, and you know some of the key factors in that. So that's why the podcasts are the way they're set up, right? Twelve to twenty minutes. They've been a little bit longer lately because I've got more shit to say, but they're made to be listened to time and time again, and. You know, they never they never were designed to be really monetized. They were designed to get the right information out there that I could also use as a library for people. Like, hey, go listen to this podcast. And honestly, they've they've done great. I think I'm at, I mean, if you look at, I think I'm at like 1.8 million listens, you know, over all the platforms. And of course, you know, I've made like four grand, right? I've made nothing, but but that that wasn't the that wasn't necessarily the intent, but they're as you guys know they're very they're actually very difficult to do um an idea with me will start with nabil wouldn't know nabil wouldn't know if they're difficult to do or not because i do everything around here what do you what do you have to say for yourself nabil oh my god look at the whiner (laughs) (laughs) yeah these things start off at like 20 to 28 pages and then you know a a they end up being around 12 to 15 pages. So I have to keep distilling down my messaging. So they're very difficult to do, but um, they're good for me because it helps, you know, it helps form my thoughts um, and it helps, you know, kind of narrow my stuff down. So they're good for me to kind of hone my communication, my communication down. So yeah, the podcasts are great. And again, I have so many more topics to do um, and I've been neglecting them. So um, I'm going to keep at them. Serious question though, uh, the Michelins versus the Bridgestones. since you since you touched on it, those are two tire tire brands or tires that I, I personally don't don't get along with that much. The Bridgestones uh, they have they have nice characteristics for me, uh, but I can't figure out when they're gonna slide. And once once they were sliding, I'm, I was like, oh, did I just slide? I didn't even feel it. And then the Michelin's the the steering, uh, those tires are way too uh, triangled. For me, so you fall into the corner pretty quick. So I I, I prefer the Pirellis uh, and the Dunlops over over those. What 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 am I doing wrong? Why am, why am I not getting getting along with those with the Bridgestones or the Michelins? Yeah, I mean I haven't ridden Bridgestones or Michelins in a few years. I spend most of my time in full transparency Dunlop sponsored riders. So I spend most of my time on Dunlops. Though I do ride Pirellis as well uh, on clients' bikes. I've done magazine tests with all sorts of different brands. So um, I'd spend most of my time on on the Dunlops and, and the Pirellis. Um, I was a Michelin-sponsored rider for many years, um, so I have a lot of time on the Michelins. And yeah, we definitely got a lot of different profiles, uh, mainly on the fronts. They were, I mean, they were different heights. They were different. Oh, they were just so different. Um, the Bridgestones. I've always thought the Bridgestones, I always thought those tires had honestly fairly good grip. They had very goofy profiles. Um, same thing. They were almost opposites where the Bridgestone didn't steer well because it was a flatter front profile. Um, the Michelin was always a much more triangulated one. Bridgestone rear didn't have very good side grip, had good drive grip. The Michelin Michelin rear honestly always was a, was a very, very good tire. Um, but are you doing anything wrong? Not necessarily. I think it's it's understanding what that characteristic is, and then you know potentially making making some setup changes for it um, when there are big extremes. 
it's funny, like going from like Dunlops to Pirelli's, there's really not a lot you have to do on like some of the geometry things. There's definitely some things you can do on the on the hydraulics, but um, those other ones, yeah, they, they definitely seem to take a, an actual like geometry change um, to, to make them work. And then again, yeah, to your point, you're really not doing anything wrong. Um, it's just, learning a little bit more where the characteristics are and adjusting to it either with the bike or how you're approaching brakes or throttle. Uh, I love I love the Pirelli, but uh, then you can't beat the Dunlop's value. I mean, for the money, can't can't beat that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I I mean, I think the I think the Pirelli's have got great grip. I mean, I, I can't make that up. But man, do the Dunlop's have a lot of feel. I just think they have so much feel. Uh, especially on the side, I just, I just, you can't beat how much feedback they they give you, and I think the side grip is phenomenal. Yeah. Okay, so so you heard it, folks. Uh, go go listen to the Ken Hill podcast and listen to it from the beginning, which which is I think what I'm gonna do. Uh, since I finished all those episodes, I I really need to start from scratch. Yeah, it's funny. I've listened to a few. I mean, I've gone back and listened to a few, but I'm like, damn, that's pretty good. And then there's a few of them I'm like, oh man, do I need to re-record that? But I mean, that's just that's just how it goes. But uh, yeah, part of the next steps is to put myself in a little bit of a position to do that. And I think what you'll see is me uh, again. I'm going to be launching a Substack, and Substack there'll be some free sections, be some monetized sections. But a lot of it is I, I've always wanted to give a little bit more of the backstory on some of these things. And so you'll see maybe two paragraphs or three paragraphs with a podcast. So it's like, why am I doing this podcast? What did I learn? Where was the attention of this podcast? So I'll have some written material and you'll be able to listen to the podcast maybe a little bit differently. So you'll see a bunch of fun stuff like that. Um, also, I've done, you know, obviously, I haven't missed a Moto America race since 2015, right? So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. I've had a lot of people ask me to like have recaps of the weekends because uh, we take so much, so many notes. So I think a really fun deal would be to kind of have a podcast over every session uh, of what we've done. I think, um, uh, again, they're so intense. Uh, so that'd be something fun to do as well. So lot, again, lots and lots to do, but it all boils down to making myself better and my program better. I love the sound of that. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, uh, the fact that you're taking the approach where you can propagate your lessons to a larger group of people, I think is a great way to approach it because one-on-one -on -one you can benefit one and now you're, you know, one to thousands. And we definitely think the industry needs that. So, yeah, to your point, you know, it's like a lot of this, again, my, I, I mentioned it, like I want to get better, right? So when I, when I work with somebody, regardless who it is, I want to learn something that day and I'll, I'll seek something out to learn that day. And, you know, and again, I, I also see <laughs> honestly, how many mistakes I make and, you know, how, how do I correct those mistakes and how do I not make these mistakes again? But what's happened the last three or four or five years is, you know, that I'm not, and again, I'm not saying I'm definitely not perfect because I, I, I make so many mistakes, but a lot of what's happening in the one-on-ones is it ends up being a lot of affirmation of what is right. And it's like, I get the more and more data that I get, it's like, it's like, for instance, bike placement being the number one fundamental. God damn it. It's the, it is absolutely correct. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, 
you know, somebody will come in and say, I want to work on body position, but you're missing every apex and you don't even, you're, you're, you have no, you have no idea what direction is or where the bike should be. So you're working on the wrong thing. That's ultimately going to burn you out and get you out of the sport because you're not having fun anymore. So it's like a lot of the things that I'm doing is just really affirmation of what's right. And I really want to double down on that because if we know what's right, well, then it all, it highlights what's wrong. And I differentiating between those things is going to help. I hope is going to help shortcut a lot of people's um, learning curve. I think the internet has right now, and I, and I think I say it in every episode, the internet has a lot of material uh, about motorcycles that has a lot of views um, and a lot of engagement uh, and, and a lot of YouTubers are making a lot of money off of it that is, I don't want to say misleading, but it's it's amateur-like and it, it's not quality content and it's not things that people should be watching. Uh, and I think I think the material that you put out there is, is um, one of those one of those things that actually elevate and actually are that that's the type of material that we need out there uh, that people should watch and listen and get get the correct information uh, instead of instead of another you know exhaust install video on my BMW M1000RR. Um, something that's that's actually quality information uh, i think what's missing is that people are understanding the consequences right they don't understand that that this is a consequence bearing sport and you it go you guys know right when it goes wrong it goes wrong very quickly and it goes wrong catastrophically and i've i've experienced that firsthand i've experienced that with friends and we this is a lethal sport and if you don't take that into consideration, it goes back to, like I was saying, these guys, a lot of those, those, those SF guys, right? They're training to mitigate risk. And that's what makes them successful. So, yeah, a lot of what I'm doing is, is providing techniques and habits that allow you to, to mitigate risk as your risk level comes up. And I think that's what's missing is, you know, hey, bro, send it. Or, or you know, let's have a video on on dragging my elbow or whatever it might be. Um, all that shit's, you know, cool to a degree, but yeah, that's, that's not what's going to keep you in the sport a long time. Yeah. yeah. So where can people find you? You mentioned, we mentioned your website, KH. Yeah, it's, then- I mean, it's khcoaching.com. And again, it's lame. It sucks. There's really nothing on there. Um, but I think what you're going to see is, you know, right now the visibility is you can go to the website, um, there's a few things on there um, that you can check out, but not a lot. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. There's a bunch of actually a bunch of cool things on the YouTube channel. I mean, I've got a bunch of car videos on there as well, but there's a lot of good bike stuff uh, available on there. Um, and then the podcasts themselves, right? The podcasts are just a, a, a library of good, of great information. There'll be, you know, I'll, ha- I'll have something out probably in the next four to six weeks on the Substack announcement. Uh, there'll be something out there that people can sign up for. I'll be sending out emails to my email list. And that's really going to be sort of, I, I want a single hub for all the stuff. Instead of having a YouTube channel and then a podcast and then this, I want to have one place where all of my stuff goes that still allows people to interact with me. And that's going to be the goal with the uh, with the Substack direction. Also, you don't find Ken Hill. He finds you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Terrific. Well, awesome, guys. This has been a fascinating conversation, Ken. Thank you for being so generous with your time and advice. I, you know, I've learned a lot. You know, Gal never learns anything, <laughs> and I hope our listeners are going to learn a lot from it. You know, I think I think what it boils down to is you can go as far as you want in the sport if you if you get the right fundamentals and you have the right approach and you put your time in. You really can, and everybody, you know, a lot of people don't think they they can do it, but you can do it. But got to have the discipline, got to have the right fundamentals, um, and you got to you, you, know, you got basically got to keep at it. And if you can do that, you absolutely can go as far as you want in the sport. I've I've seen it time and time again, um, and hopefully this, you know, having having uh, a mindset like this will will keep people in our in our great sport because it is it is there's there's just nothing like it. Yeah. That's great. You know, the gem of this is you can get a, a mini bike and practice in the parking lot so you could do it five times a week if you wanted to and not have to wait for track days once a month and get a lot of fundamentals work that way. I think that was a fantastic idea. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's honestly, that's how I, that when I was getting ready for nationals, I had very little time. I mean, I raced at AFM, but I didn't have any time. So instead I could jump on you know, I could jump on a dirt bike and I could spend 30 minutes literally in the backyard, you know, big backyard, but working on stuff um, and always have that feel, right? Always have that sharpness and just not not getting away from it. And yeah, it's all there. So so there you have it. Right. That that was another episode of uh, which which podcast, Nabil? On the Ken Hill podcast? Ken Hill. It- <laughs> Okay, it was the Ken Hill podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we we thank our very special guest Ken Hill. Uh, thank you for uh, making making that time for us, uh, and and see we can we can produce an episode month after month consistently if we do it two months in a row, right? There you go. Amazing <laughs> <laughs> how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys for listening. <laughs>